0: We're here because your tomb is empty and your resurrection brings hope to every situation. And Jesus, you said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And Lord, we do mourn uh, over racism and injustice and violence and hatred and And we mourn because we long to be one nation under God, and we're so far from that, and so we mourn. And Jesus, you also said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And you didn't just say it, you stepped right between a holy God and sinful people and you bore our sins, and you rose. And, and Lord, you call us to be peacemakers. Help us to carry out our our ministry of reconciliation as your ambassadors reconciling people to you and to each other. And, And, Lord, we hear so many voices today, and it's hard to know what the truth is. So we're so thankful we have your word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And Holy Spirit, we're glad you're the spirit of truth. And so as Tim comes and opens the word for us today, Holy Spirit, teach us. We long to hear truth. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Hey, good morning. I'm Tim Pollack. I'm uh, the small group director here, and uh, I'm I'm honored to be able to bring you uh, a word today. If you're new, we've been going through the book of Genesis this year, and um, we are in chapter 16. We good, Ed? Sorry. Okay. Uh, So let's jump in. I'm fired up. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept you from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, "'You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands,' Abram said. "'Do with her whatever you think best.' Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Laha Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. So two things stick out to me in this text, and on the screen is where we are going this morning. So the point for today is that God sees you, and then below the point, That's my outline for today. Um, So we're going to spend time this morning looking at the way uh, God sees us in our impatience and how God sees us as image bearers. And I'm going to apologize now, but I'm going to have to drink water quite a bit throughout this. I appreciate the pity laugh. (laughs) Sincerely. Genesis 16 is a beautiful passage. And looking at great writing always takes me back to my days as an English teacher. And one of the things English teachers try to do is uh, distill a larger text into as few words as possible so students can understand the essence of what the author is saying. And one way I did that uh, was by using a poem called a found poem, um, where you literally find a poem within the prose, and so I did that with Genesis 16. So if you're watching online, I know you can't see that, and that's not important, I promise. But as we look at this, this is not suggesting that the rest of the text is not important. For every word of scripture is important. The highlighted words are simply the words that we will be sitting in this morning. So as we get to the finished poem here, these are the words that I was meditating on over the last few weeks. And I think they will be helpful for you to meditate on this morning as well. So back in January, the Good News staff went to a conference in Orlando and we heard a speaker named Alan Fadling, who described how to live what he calls an unhurried life. And his books are on the screen. I would highly recommend uh, considering purchasing them. They deeply impacted me. Uh, what, we sat there mesmerized as Fadling took apart biblical texts and opened them in ways that made me see Sabbath rest differently than I ever had up to that point. And I came away convicted that much of my life had a sense of hurried impatience to it. And as Fadling points out, it's a version of impatient hurry that drives Abram and Sarai to orchestrate a childbirth. But as Abram and Sarai are quickly reminded, God does not need help keeping his promises. For Sarai, her shame is clear. In a culture in which a woman's worth was 100% tied to her ability to bear children, Sarai places her value on her womb and not her Lord. I'll touch on this a bit later, but it's important to remember that Sarai is not in the fast food line complaining about the status of her burger order. As we are told in verse three, she has waited 10 years. From the sound of things, it hasn't been the most enjoyable decade, but regardless, you can understand and likely relate to her decision to try to take control of things. And here is where things spiral for Sarai. She first blames God for her misfortune, making the cringeworthy statement, the Lord has kept me from having children. And When the consequences of her own faulty plan bring dissatisfaction, She then shifts the blame to her husband, Abram. But we can't let Abram off the hook either. For Abram, it seems much more about passivity than impatience or control. And this isn't the first time we've seen Abram's passivity get in the way of his judgment. We've already seen him put Sarai at major risk in Egypt. And in today's encounter, he does not exactly come off looking like a hero of the faith. And this is why we have to be careful using the term biblically healthy marriage. Because the Bible is notoriously loud on sinfully dysfunctional families and eerily quiet on harmonious, healthy families. And as you know, families are made up of selfish sinners. And family time, particularly quarantined family time, can sometimes feel like a wreck. Thankfully, though, there's a deeper purpose at work in this mess, because God specializes in redeeming messes. So I want to step back and look at this scene objectively. Now in their 70s and 80s, Abram and Sarai consider themselves too old for kids. And so they see the fulfillment of God's promise as impossible. And as I've mentioned already, they've waited a decade And despite her bluntness, you can't help but feel some sympathy for Sarai. Month after month pass, and it's disappointment after disappointment for her. And any family who's had a struggle with infertility probably understands the pain Sarai felt and can maybe defend her bitterness better than a 42-year-old male like me. So they decide to do the socially acceptable, common, and some would argue responsible thing a surrogate adoption. In reality, compared to our microwave society, Abram and Sarai are patient, because let's be honest, how often do we wait a decade to let God show up? I'll admit that my unanswered prayers often get deserted after a certain amount of time. Yet despite our own stories of unbelief, it's still tempting to fault Abram and Sarai for taking matters into their own hands. Because our advantage, as readers of their account, is that we can see their whole story. So why is patience so hard for us? We are going and going and going. A God for whom a day is a thousand years is not in a hurry. So why are we? We got a glimpse of this unhurried living during the COVID quarantine. I don't know about you, but I took approximately 8 million walks with my wife. For as much fun as I have coaching my kids in rec league basketball, those suddenly free Saturday mornings, they were a gift. Our family took picnics at the fort downtown. We put up a tent in the backyard, sat out by the fire nearly every night, and ate far too many s'mores. We even watched live television, commercials and all. We dawdled. We took naps. I read and wrote and read and wrote. It was pretty awesome. We were disconnected from society, but fully connected to God and each other. The goal, of course, is to be connected to both, as the Bible calls us to. But how? Are we willing to be patient and wait on God to move? Jesus, remember, waited 30 years and then an extra 40 days. Moses stood before Pharaoh 10 times before he let his people go. Israel marched around Jericho seven times before the walls came down, and Joseph sat in jail year after year. God seems to work through a process. What process does he have you in? Probably most of you are familiar with Duke's basketball coach, Mike Krzyzewski. And if you follow basketball, you likely know that Coach K's early record at Duke was not good So in his first three years, as the slide shows, Coach K compiled a very pedestrian 38-47 and record. In 1983, it looked like Coach K was in the process of becoming a lifelong assistant coach rather than a Hall of Fame head coach. But he stuck to his process, and after a mediocre start, he went on to win five national championships and a smirk like you've never seen. Now let's apply that more locally with our very own Chad Warner, small group leader and the head coach for the men's basketball team at Flagler College. In Chad's first year at Flagler, his team went seven and 19. And this coming season, the 2020-2021 season, he'll be a perfect (laughs) 29-0. Congrats, coach. (laughs) To be clear though, Trusting God's process doesn't mean it's all championships and champagne. Just as Coach K suffered embarrassing first-round losses, you too will suffer setbacks. Fellow Christians will sin against you, and not to be outdone, you will sin against other Christians. I was recently watching a video about Eugene Peterson, the late pastor who is most known for writing the Message Translation of the Bible. And he shared a story of watching a kingfisher bird perch on a branch over a lake and take dives at catching fish. Peterson got curious about the kingfisher's effectiveness, so he started counting the dives it took for the bird to catch his first fish. And it took 37 dives. And this is from the bird we have named the kingfisher. We have all sorts of ways to measure our success these days. Analytics is the new efficiency, and 0 for 37 is not a very good statistic. But God doesn't seem to be very keen on analytics. Think about your own personal evangelism, and how we tend to base our success as an evangelist on our conversion rate rather than our sharing rate. So be encouraged. Your evangelism is not wasted when you hear no. Evangelism isn't hearing yes, it's proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, and then offering that invitation to others. Trust that God will send his Holy Spirit on the 38th conversation, because 38, 59, 156 no's in a row, that's when it gets really hard. But if we take scripture seriously, we see that that's when God has us where he wants us. So what impossibility are you confronted with right now? What knows have you heard over and over again? Has it been long enough that you're beginning to wonder whether God will come through, whether he'll be faithful to his promise? And if so, take heart, because that means you're human. And part of the human struggle includes seeing ourselves and others as created beings made in the image of God. And it's the image of God, or Imago Dei, where I want to spend the rest of our time, particularly as it relates to Hagar. Put simply, the Imago Dei is the idea that humans are created beings, and what is most important about the human race is our likeness to God. As you remember from the early parts of Genesis, animals are all made according to their kinds. This phrase occurs ten times and leaves a bold imprint on the narrative. It indicates that while there are differences among the living creatures, there are groupings among them that share common features, which makes them form families of things. The tenfold mention of this pattern causes us to expect it with each new living creature to appear. But something quite different happens when man is made. The pattern is broken. Man is not made according to his kind. Instead, God announces, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Further, in Genesis 9, God makes a covenant with Noah. Genesis 9-6 shows that taking innocent human life is an attack on the image of God. So it must be punished by death. Mankind, then, in the image of God, is to be a giver of life. When we take life, we contradict our purpose and forfeit the divine protection that ordinarily covers us. All of human ethics, therefore, is an imago Dei issue, meaning each of our earthly roles are designed to mimic God's roles. Look at the family unit, for example. Husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. Fathers must discipline and instruct their children as the lord does his own children the comforting love of a mother is the image and likeness of the comforting love of god and then we apply that more broadly and we see that god's hand extends to all of our world view though sin has greatly defaced god's image in us by god's grace through christ that image is renewed and then living by that grace people see our good works and give glory to our Father. And finally, when our restoration is complete, we will forever live in the presence of God, clothed with his glory, having truly become his kind of people. The Imago Day then calls us to see the image of God in everyone, the homeless, the downtrodden, the prostitute. If every human being is an image bearer, we must denounce atrocities that violate this covenant. And as we've seen thus far in Genesis, the idea of a biblical wholesome family is a misnomer of sorts. Our lineage is one of murderers, fornicators, and incestuous liars. So we cannot, on one hand, laud the dysfunctional families of the Bible and then condemn the mistakes of contemporary politicians, professional athletes, or even activists or protesters. A criminal record or perfect citizen, God redeems every single sinner who confesses with his tongue that Christ is Lord, not just those who look like us. Now, some might label these comments social justice. But the Imago Day is not political language. It's kingdom language. And furthermore, what I want to point you to is not our wretchedness, although we are plenty wretched, but God's goodness. Our God leaves the 99. Our God is the king of kings, the cornerstone, the firm foundation. Our God is the life giver and the sustainer. Our God is so good that he tracks down an Egyptian slave and calls her by name. And our God sees each one of us and has imprinted us with a unique identity. And it's Hagar's identity that God speaks to in verse eight when he asks her, where have you come from and where are you going? And these are not only great questions, but who is also being addressed because Hagar is a slave, which is why I spent 575 words on the Imago Day, because Hagar was a mistreated slave on the lowest level of her society. She was forced into marriage and motherhood neither of which she likely wanted. Yet despite her low standing to her culture, she was precious to her image maker. Now when God asks Hagar, where have you come from? It's important to note that the all-knowing, all-powerful creator God has not forgotten his geography. The Alpha and the Omega is not confused about where Egypt is on a map. He is asking Hagar about her pain and her struggle. We know this because verse 11 says God has heard Hagar's cry of affliction. And God has seen all of her life. Every blow Sarai inflicted upon her, every blind eye Abram turned, and every injustice she suffered. And it gets better. God sees you too. The gods Hagar grew up with, the gods of Egypt, would never notice a slave girl. In order to get Egyptian gods to notice you, you had to be high up on the priest ladder. You had to coax and feed and flatter and forfeit. So Hagar reacts in a way that is utterly unique in scripture. She gives a name to the Lord, the God of seeing, for she has witnessed firsthand that the Lord sees her plight and graciously cares for her. So where are you right now? I imagine between covid racial turmoil, not to mention everyday struggles, that you probably have a lot on your heart and on your mind. So let's start with God's first question to Hagar, where have you come from? One of my favorite assignments as an English teacher is having students recreate a poem called, Where I'm From, by George Ella Lyon. In this poem, the writer describes not the town she grew up in, but all the things from her childhood that helped shape her into an adult. So she lists favorite trees, cleaning products, awkward moments, funerals, sayings her parents drilled into her head, and embarrassing middle school stories. As you can imagine, parts of the poem are beautiful and funny, and other parts are heartbreaking. It has become somewhat of a classic assignment because it gives students the opportunity to define their upbringing on their own terms. So if you had to recreate that poem, what would it say? And furthermore, of all the things in your poem, which of them are you running away from? Because that's God's next question to Hagar. So what is this all about? Why is God chasing after this Egyptian slave whom he knows by name? Well, as you know, the Bible can be complicated. It's 66 books, but one story. It's part poetry, part narrative, part history, part prophecy. And in many cases, it takes understanding metaphor to understand the text. After all, without metaphor, Jesus's I am statements would be nonsensical. Without metaphor, what would we make of the Psalms and Proverbs? And along those same lines, <clears throat> is paradox, which Paul employs when he explains our relationship to Christ. A paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense, and yet is true. And paradox lies at the heart of the Christian faith. We worship a master who is a servant, and who says weakness is a power. Furthermore, the gospel is only good if it has both good and bad. 1 Corinthians 7.22 puts it this way. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's free person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. Paradoxically then, by enslaving ourselves to Christ, we become free. Make no mistake though, as it says in 1 Corinthians 6, we were bought at a price. But not with dirty man-made money, but rather the blood of Christ. In the Bible, we see one continuous story of God's gracious plan to redeem needy sinners. John Murray, a late theologian, said this, When the Master is the omnipotent Lord of the universe, slavery is a consummate privilege and a passionate delight. So for the Christian, slave is a paradoxically honorific title Because our master is the kind who cleans his apostles' feet and lays down his life for them. And who tells them if we are tired and burdened, that he will give us rest for our souls. But I know the idea of being a slave to anything can be difficult for some of us. And I'd imagine that some of you are thinking, Hey, small group guy, I'm no one's slave. And while I understand that sentiment, I'd offer you this. It's exactly what they said to Jesus. In John 8, it says, They, the Jews, answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Now, the irony of a people whose history is rooted in bondage and slavery, claiming that they have never been enslaved, should not be missed there. And you could argue that's how we look when we say that we aren't a slave to anything or anyone. But listen to Jesus's answer. Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So the translation is this. We are all in chains. Some chains are darker than others. And we know that society places a different weight on each one. But listen, pornography cannot be a hobby. You cannot with a straight face tell me that you can manage a pornography hobby. Because once your brain has seen an image, it's wired to want a new one, and a new one, and a new one. And along those same lines, greed is not a leisure activity. Whatever you buy, no matter how awesome it is, we'll need replacing. And denying your enslavement to those things and the host of other things that our culture gladly lures us in with is simply trading one set of terrible chains for another. Jesus, meanwhile, presents an amazing opportunity. You can trade those terrible chains for glorious ones. Chains that are not connected to darkness or emptiness. No, these glorious chains are connected to the servant master who is unchanging, unfading, and all-powerful. You were bought at a price, and the one who purchased you sees you and knows you. Now, Hagar got that, and what likely allowed her to understand this in such a full way was her standing as a slave, which would entitle her to no inheritance. But in the kingdom of God, we find yet another paradox that a woman is entitled to sonship. As it says in Galatians 4, But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba father the hebrew idea of a son was about who would take over the family when the father stepped down and who would receive the inheritance but god stepped in and radically declared that men and women are one in christ equally privileged and exalted co-heirs together and in his kingdom both men and women receive the full inheritance through faith in him And again, our faith gives room for this paradox. In her book, Surprised by Paradox, Jen Pollock Michelle writes, Jesus invites us to abandon the polarities of either or in order to embrace the difficult, wondrous dissonance of and. We are not related, by the way. She is a terrific writer, though. This means that we have room for condemning racism and looting. We do not have to choose either or. We can fight to preserve life and condemn violent retaliation. There is a popular saying that is working its way around social media that you've probably seen. It's that racism isn't a skin issue, it's a sin issue. Christianity, however, allows us to turn that statement into racism is a skin issue and a sin issue. This week, has been very tough. Despite the complexity of all that is going on, and with fear that I may not say the right words, I am consp- compelled to speak on what I know is true. There is a serious racial divide in our country. And the two things that I highlighted this morning are patience and the Imago Day. And the Imago Day is fairly obvious to practice. I have seen and read and listened to so many accounts of black friends, former students, former teammates, and it's heartbreaking. These are people I've known a long time, and I've never truly understood or heard their horror stories, and it has made me feel ashamed. I think it's high time we treat all of God's people as fellow image bearers. The patience part, however, is trickier, because black families have waited and prayed and waited and prayed. And if you are not a person of color, like me, perhaps it's time for us to be the patient ones. Perhaps it's time for us to resist the urge to lead or to fix the situation. And in our patience, I'm suggesting that we practice four things. That we pray, that we listen, that we mourn and rejoice. So how should we pray? 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. About listening, James 1.19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Romans 12, 15 says to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. And finally, in Philippians 4, it says rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things and the God of peace will be with you. Like Hagar, I've been running away the last several weeks. In addition to all that is going on in our world, I continue to mourn the loss of my nephew, Noah. And as some of you know, the month of May is a challenging one for my whole family, but in particular for my oldest brother, Ryan, and his wife, Jenny. May starts with Mother's Day. celebrating mother's day without your child is very hard about a week later is jenny's birthday and then the month concludes with the anniversary of noah's death which also happens to fall on my wife kim's birthday and what i found myself doing was staying busy on those dates rather than taking my limit to god i hid from him And so it caught up to me on May 27th. Because what better way to tell your wife happy birthday than by bringing home dinner and promptly bursting into tears. And what I continue to learn the hard way is that I can't outsmart or outwit God. He sees all of me, and I have to get out of the way and let him do the work in me. In the face of a global pandemic, nationwide protesting, unemployment, hurricane season, I offer you the same thing God told Hagar, which is to go back and and to submit to her master. So what pain are you keeping to yourself? What in your heart needs to be softened? Whose forgiveness do you need to ask? God sees you and he hears you. He hears your cries of affliction, so go back to him. For some of you, this means running toward him for the first time. And if you've never accepted Christ, you can do that today. We don't have the miserable trek back to our master that Hagar did. We aren't walking through the desert alone, practicing our I'm sorry speech. You can simply hold out your hands and offer it to God. Right where you are, can submit to God by confessing your sins because he promises to receive each one. Our master is a gracious God. Our master is the paradoxical servant king. So believe it when you pray, God, I may not have what I want, but I have what I need. And you So as we close, I want to revisit uh, Galatians 4-7, and I want you to put yourself in the text. It says, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. So Chase, you are no longer a slave. Slim, Demir, Dink, Byron, you are no longer a slave, but God's child since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Let's pray. God, you are good, and even when it hurts to say those words, much less believe it, you are still good. Thank you for being our gracious master. Thank you for seeing us, for knowing us, and for loving us. Lord, we pray that you heal our wounds. Great is your faithfulness. We pray that we feel your new mercies each morning. Amen. Amen. Let me send you out with this blessing. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace, the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen.